Welcome to Ogilvy Namagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 1 Mythical Women. Episode 2 The Story of Maka. The Story of Maka. Near Armagh is the green mound of mysterious Awanmaka. This is the story of its naming. In my mind, I still hear the rhythmic drumming of many hooves, the thrumming of the autumn rains, the soughing of breathing beasts, wind in the pasture grass, flashes of colour, crimson and gold of goods and buyers, the gleam of sudden sun on red alder. Oh, but I remember the woman. I remember the sudden vision of her as she came to end my loneliness. I remember the step of her through long grass, the standing of her in the early morning, a silhouette of youthful joy on the hill's rim, and the poise and grace of her as she moved beneath my roof. She chose me, this beautiful stranger. She chose my house, my hearth, and my bed, creating a time of order and prosperity for me. She became the heart of my life, but she remained a stranger. For even as she carried our child, she would answer no questions, but bade me be content to hold safe this gift of life between us. Be still, she told me, for we have made together an echo of the land of promise, and for a while its magic thrives here. But it will last only as long as you do not speak of me. And I was content, but I was proud also, and my pride was my downfall. It was time for the Feast of Samhain, when all were summoned to the gathering place of Cahormac Nessa. This was a great feast of celebration, but now I was loath to leave my hearth and the woman whose birthing was so near. Yet I would be on a lost if I should not attend, so I travelled to the King's Feast with the words of the woman wrapping me close. Say nothing of me and our lives together. And I said nothing. I said nothing at the king's board, though all the champions boasted of their deeds and their goods. I said nothing. But that was before the racing of the chariots. When it was time for the king's horses to be shown before the assembly, oh, I could see that every praise word spoken had been well deserved. They were tall and glossy, the sun's beams flashing fire coal through their sleek coats. But they brought to my mind the supple limbs of the woman, their clear eyes, her deep wisdom, their wild manes, the rich flowing of her hair. As I watched them put to their paces, saw them running, all I could see was the beauty of the woman, and in my pride I spoke of her with words of great praise. I told of her grace and her grooming, the speed of her running. I cried out that she could race the world's wind and would surely leave behind the king's horses as leaves scattered by the wind. Cahur heard me and was angry at my boasting, so I was bound by the bonds of my words and the bonds of the king until the woman could be brought before the assembly and matched against the great horses to the testing of my words. And she came, of course, my beautiful woman. She came even though the time for her to give birth was so very close. 
when she heard that my life was forfeit until she could prove my boast. She set herself to the testing. And she ran. She ran as the clouds raced the hunter's moon. She ran as wind on water, as waves across sand. Her hair flowed, flooding around her. She ran until the horses were left far behind in her wake. Once she made circuit, carving the course of her running in the land, and then, with a triumph, triumph and loss, she fell. And triumph and loss it was indeed, for in gaining my freedom, I lost her forever. There in that place she gave birth to twins, one as dark as cloud shadow, the other as fair as the moon on water. No one aided her in her labour. No one dared. We watched in awe as she rose, holding the babies high for us to see. She stood tall, altered, mist-cloaked. Then she spoke. By your own law, you well know that the words of a woman in childbirth cannot be unspoken. Now I say to you that I am Maka. I have moved amongst you bringing prosperity and order, but you have used me ill. For your lack of pity this day I lay anointed and of weakness on you, at the moment when you most have need of strength. Yet the name I have given to this place I will not take back. Even in defeat, Awan Maka will live on in the glory of the teller of tales. Great will be the winning and the losing. But at the last, this land will still remember me. As we watched, shadow covered her and she was gone. But in the last of the twilight, it seemed to see the shape of a great mare, mane netting the new-lit stars. And even the imagining was gone, and I was alone. So Awanmaka was named, and flamed with her blessing, as later it suffered her curse at the time of the great raid of the bulls. But I, Crumcru, sit here in the ruins of memory, and I dream. Perhaps the cheering of the warriors is no more than the carrying crawl of crows. But I am an old man, and dreams of Maka are dreams of glory. So that's the story of the naming of Awan Maka, and it's told by Crumcrew himself. It's a story that comes from the Ulster cycle rather than the mythological cycle, but that seems to be an artificial way of seeing it. For me, they feel like, oh, I don't know, a sort of Iron Age story rather than a Bronze Age story, but maybe you could put it into a better context. Well, it's certainly a story about agricultural people uh, who have settled. It's not a nomadic people. There aren't the great wild forests that you might find in the Fenian kind of hunting stories. Uh, so, yeah, we are talking about a story that reflects that kind of society and that development in society into being settled communities who then uh, work the land as farmers and uh, start to have local kings, tribal kings. Right. So it feels almost like um, that it's more about the settlement of the land than the creation of the land itself. And it sounds like uh, that the, really that the, it's all about conspicuous wealth. Yeah, it's it's about the production of wealth and how important that settlement and uh, agriculture is that they can then support if you like an, an upper class an aristocratic so ruling class social status is becoming something that really matters absolutely and that the means of displaying or acknowledging or 
proving your social status um, then comes with conspicuous wealth that the accounting for uh, your property and your production. So we're really dealing with low legal status now, isn't it? It is. It's it's the source of the development of um, the really quite sophisticated early Irish legal system, which goes hand in hand with the complex social status. Essentially, the reason that Irish law was well developed is because they wanted a system whereby you could compare the material wealth of, uh, let's say, a farmer, like mm-hmm. Crunchu, with the non-material wealth of a poet or a, a judge or someone whose con- contribution to the social order was not so easily uh, tangible. And this was all done with binding social contracts? It was, essentially. that, that um, It meant that your exact social status was important because uh, it was a way of equating the strong farmer with the chief poet and the middling farmer with the middling poet and so on, that you needed to be able to equate those different levels in very different ways of life. Um, and so certainly then that had an impact on uh, the kind of legal contracts that you were able to go into and whether someone else had legal priority over you so that their word was more important than yours when it came to binding into a contract or swearing an oath. And of course, we are talking about a, well, I don't like the term preliterate, but certainly these things were not written down initially. And so the actual both demonstrating of wealth and speaking of contracts became very important. So with at this time, with all this, um, the, 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 the showing of wealth, the importance of the oral contract, social status, you get this character, Maka, this amazing woman who turns out of nowhere, won't allow anyone to say her name, and then races horses. I mean, somebody who is definitely a supernatural character. Now, she turns up more than once, doesn't she? First of all, there's the story about, uh, oh, back in the uh, Lever Gavola. Yes, the, the Book of Invasions. Book of Invasions. I love that one. It's supposed to be the Book of the Invasions of Ireland. It's supposed to be the Five Invasions of Ireland. And it depends whether you count whether there's five or six. And so we call it the Five and a Half. Yes. Approximately five and a half invasions of Ireland. Yeah. Oh, it's a great story. But each time, each of these group of peoples turns up out of the blue and uh, they clear plains and they dig wells and then they all promptly die of plague or disappear or get lost. And there's about five groups. And so they really, if you like, they're the creation stories of Ireland and fascinating. And we could talk a lot more about those. But the third one Someone called Never arrives. Yeah, Never leads the third group of people who supposedly come to colonise Ireland. Uh, and again, he's supposed to have uh, cleared 12 planes. And he's accompanied... We're not talking about airports here. No, no <laughs> aeroplanes, thank you very much, none of that. Um, so uh, Never's wife is named as Macha in that and she's Macha daughter of Oid Ruad which means red flame red flame and what I think is absolutely fantastic is that never never's a really interesting word because it means either a sort of sacred enclosure a place set apart for a special um a special purpose you said to me it was often um learning or bardship or yes, music it, it, 
And, and the term nevet as well seems to have been understood to indicate a person who was the chief poet or the most learned. Uh, it was like a term of distinction was nevet. So it's both the place of learning and the person of learning as well. And the enclosure of yeah. a place set aside for civilization, if you like. Yeah, a garden. A garden. Uh, yeah. Uh, a place of organisation. And yet Maka's name is seems to be connected with pasture. It does. I don't have all the linguistic evidence for this, but it seems to be the, the sort of the best guess from my point of view is that, yes, Macha is associated with terms for pasture, which gives us with this third group of people, we have the enclosure of a separate space for culture. And then you have Macha as the pasture which raises livestock. And so this third settlement of Ireland now not only includes management of land, but it also includes the uh, the cultivation and the culture. And we have Never de Macha who represent uh, the garden, the 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 the, the garth and the pasture. Yes. Um, I find that fascinating. It so is. this here we have that's that's Maka. Um, mind you, you've got to remember it's no good looking for family trees in the, all of this. They're they're, they're more like um, attributions than anything else, aren't they? They are because again, the the name Maka comes up and you can trace the character similarities. But in one text, she'll set, be said to be a daughter of Mither of Breleth. In another text, she'll be said to be daughter of Eithruid. Uh, in one, she's the wife of Nevid, in the other, she's the wife of Nuada. Doesn't really matter, does it? It, it tells you about what she's doing at that time, exactly. rather than the, it's not the relationships, it's the attributions. Yes, and also you, you can't really you can't see them as a, a single human person in that sense. Why we're, we're talking about characters here, because of course in that story in the Book of Invasions with Nevid, uh, Macha dies and she's buried in the plain of Armagh, Ardvacha, which is said to be one of those uh, 12 plains created by Nevid. And yet she appears again, whole and hale and hearty, um, to come to Crunchu in the story that we heard at the beginning. Oh, of course, she appears again at the great battle of Moitura as the wife of Nuada of the Silver Hand. Another great story. She fights a great battle against Balor, yeah. the evil eye, and uh, uh, is killed by him. It's a great part of the story, but it's just a passing role, isn't it? It is. It's only really a, as part of the uh, in, innumerable millions and trillions who were supposedly slaughtered. Oh, as many of the stars as the sky. Exactly. Yeah, as many of the warriors of the Battle of Moitura were as great as a number of stars in the night sky. Yes. Oh, it's a brilliant story. Later. Yeah. And grains of sand on a beach and what have you. <laughs> But what's interesting is that so often you find when you read up, we look up look up about Maka or you want to look up in a dictionary of Celtic personages, she's always described as, oh, she's a war goddess. She's one of the wives of Nuada or the wife of Nuada. And uh, uh, the, the warriors who are killed are said to be the acorn, the heads of the warriors are said to be the acorn, what is it? The Mecca's um, acorn, acorn crop. Uh, you know, as, as numerous as the acorns on a tree. Mm. And so she often gets listed as a war goddess, mm. which seems a bit strange for someone whose name probably means pasture. Well, quite. And uh, in terms of, if you like, the, the, the stories around Macha herself, rather than an appearance in a glossary or an annal which says, oh yes, the Macha's acorn crop or, you know, 
that listing her as a goddess that it when she actually shows up herself i think that this one in my tour is probably the only time the only time she gets involved in a battle exactly and even then it's not you know it's not a separate story she's one of the notable personages who gets killed before the big battle in happens the battle of yeah Mytura. before the final confrontation between yeah. Lou and uh, Balor yeah. uh, she's just a side issue there and yet that seems to have coloured her whole reputation yeah. as a goddess of battle mm. anyway let's go on to the main story the mm. story of the naming of Owen Maka because mm. I think this one's absolutely fascinating yeah. um, it starts I started my story with Crom uh, Crew, and mm. he's an interesting character himself. I mean, he's just there in passing in the story. He's the one she comes to, mm. but he's not so insignificant, is he? Well, certainly he, he would seem to stand for uh, a notable person within the society at the time. Notable farmer, strong farmer. A strong farmer. I love the term, the strong farmer. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's one that a lot of Irish people I think would still recognise as a, a strong farmer. Um possibly Boara, which literally means cow lord. I like that. The yeah. Irish cowboys. Or rancheros. <laughs> um so and that's somebody whose wealth is very obvious and conspicuous in terms of you can actually count his cows and you know just yeah. how wealthy he is. So it suggests that cattle were kind of important at this period. Well, they were more than important. They were actually the basis of the currency system in early Irish society. Um, the, the most common unit of currency was shades, which came to mean a jewel or a gem, um, but was actually a... It was a fraction, I think, of the value of a milking heifer. So all currency was, if you like, translated into shade, shadena, and they were uh, based on the value of a cow. So really, mm -hmm. rather than a gold standard, we had a cow, cow standard. Cow standard. Yeah, that sounds, sounds about right. The yeah. cow standard of Ireland. Yeah. Um, but so, so when this woman comes out of the blue, she's not coming to a just... A minor character. She's coming to an important aristocrat in the uh, system. Yeah, I mean, he's he's not right at the top there, but he's certainly, uh, and for example, he's not so wealthy that her appearance and her influence doesn't increase his wealth. And of course, within that society, your wealth had to be sustainable. There was no, you weren't going to get a promotion on the social ladder if you just made a quick buck. Your wealth actually had to last through to your grandchildren in order for you to get a social promotion. The coming of the woman is interesting because in so many stories, you get uh, someone who seeks for wealth or seeks... I gather his his wife had died, hadn't she? That's how the story opens, yes, is that Krunku had... He was doing rather well, um, but and his wife had borne children, but then she died, and that he was very lonely. Now, again, there's an implication in the story, in the text of the Noindanullad, uh, that... Uh, it's not proper for him to be on his own and that he should take another wife. And uh, some of this comes from his children, indeed. So um, there is something that's off-kilter, if you like, about a mature and a wealthy man. With no wife. Not having a wife. No woman. Mm. And then she comes, sort of, it, 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 it's a wonderful, this, this she comes... Oh, unexpected she comes in silence and I love the part where she just comes into his house and does all the right things very quietly yeah she she doesn't even really speak 
that we know of in this first part of the story. Uh, she does just appear out of the blue one day and just comes into Kronkhu's home as if she had always been there. And it, it does specify that she turns to the right, she turns deshel or clockwise. And it says that twice, which suggests it's important. But she just arrives one day, um, gets everybody fed, does all the washing up, uh, makes herself at home in the pantry. Yeah, and puts the children to bed. Yeah, puts the children to bed. And then she, before she herself retires, that's when she turns right hand-wise a second time. And then she goes under Krunku's blanket and puts her hand on his side, which for some reason is a phrase that always really sticks with me and uh, then they lie together that night and she becomes pregnant and this is before her name has been spoken this is really before she has said anything she just arrives and does everything that is fitting and right to do yeah, she's bringing order and uh but quiet mm. order she's she's just bringing the rightness the yeah. correctness yeah. it doesn't need stating it just is it's almost like that egyptian mart the the truth that mm. is um that makes the world work. Yes. You know, yeah. makes culture work, makes civilization, makes society work. Yeah, the things that have just always been done. Mm. Uh, it's 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 actually quite lovely. Mm. But the but the this uh, absolute uh, uh, emphasis on that he must not talk of her, he yeah. must not speak of her, mm. and surely that is almost runs counter to the way that in most stories it's the boasting the 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 display mm. um i find it interesting that this is something that mustn't be spoken of yeah and again the, it does definitely reek or of taboo or of gesh whereby you know she can only stay as long as her name is not spoken that kind of gives us an indication first of all of her kind of if you like her supernatural heritage but there's another issue there around that you have the sort of the social rightness and if you like natural order of the running of a household and of prosperity but then you have kind of on top of that you have a legal system and of course at a time when an oral contract is important people's names are also very important because their names must be publicly stated in order to bind them into a contract and that includes the contact contract of marriage which doesn't happen in this story. No, and if her name's not spoken, then she can't be part of that contract. Exactly. She can't be part of that legally bound, socially strictured world. Oh, and for anybody who's out there who's read Terry Pratchett's uh, We Free Men, it seems to be... Have you read a bit? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> if you can't write the name down, then yeah. you can't have power over them. But we know about the power of names. Yeah. And this is certainly part of it, that although she, she will come of her own accord and she will bring order and rightness and prosperity, she won't be part of, if you like, our human artifices of legality. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And then, of course, comes the fair. Now, uh, the moot, the gathering, assembly. Now, these were more than just, oh, uh, a local entertainment or anything like this. It's uh, yeah, they're, they're, a much bigger thing. Yeah, they were, they were more even than the marts and probably more than the flowering championships. Uh, the term is oinach, which literally, I suppose, means agreement or... Um, 
not even parliament. It's the time for everybody to be in the one place, essentially. And uh, as well as being, obviously, a time for entertainment and uh, and boozing and celebration, um, there was also, if you like, it was the census for the area so that every household could be enumerated and declared. Uh, and it <laughs> yeah. was the time for your income tax. That's right, for paying the tax. So you had to go to the central place and pay your taxes yeah. and announce what you got, what you made that day. But it would have also set a pecking order, wouldn't it? Set a new, you know, restored the order. Um, well, of course, if, if you have this these systems whereby you can, if you like, climb a rung on the social ladder if uh, an improvement in the family's wealth or prosperity has been sustained over a few generations so you need to be able to count that prosperity you need to be able to enumerate and you're going to announce wealth. it as well aren't you you're well, going yeah. to show it off well you need to declare it you know it's this is why it's it's more like income tax you need to declare what your wealth is so that it can be compared with previous declarations mind you in the stories they always seem to want to make the most of it whereas we want to say keep it down to a reasonable amount in mm. those days it seemed to be the more you said the more you got well absolutely <laughs> Because again, if you did have all that wealth, then you were essentially in line for promotion. Yeah, yeah. And what, what struck me as interesting, in my story, I set, set the story at uh, Samhain yes. uh, at the end of October. Now, um, I was basing it on, say, um, some of the other stories where uh, uh, the bull feast of Tara, um, in a lot of stories, this happens after harvest. Yes. At the end of, uh, at the, end of the year, the end of the Celtic year, which mm. is the end of October. Now, I, we've no proof of that that this was set at October as mm. you pointed out that in fact it could be it could be at any time because again uh, although a lot of tellings of the stories name the king of at this gathering as Crohor or Cunhover in Old Irish um, the king is not named in the Noindanullad which is the Old Irish text version he becomes Crohor or Conchover because he it's in Ulster and it's a king. That's the well-known king of the Irish exactly. uh, Ulster cycle, isn't it? Same he? way as every head of the Fianna becomes a Fionn. Yeah, and he's always associated with Cormac. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, but the point I was making, I think there's a certain irony, a sort of natural order in setting it at Samhain. After all, in Ireland, that's we still have to have our tax returns in by the end of October, so yeah. it seems as good a time as any. Absolutely. So we get to the main part of the story now and the challenge. I mean, what makes... Uh, Crumhru, he suddenly boasts that his wife can race the king's horses. It seems, yeah, when when it's when it's put in those terms, it it does seem rather foolhardy, uh, unless you sort of go back to what we were just saying about your tax returns. Yeah, it's a bit odd, isn't it? You know, look, yeah. look, uh, wow, great horses, they're magnificent, but my wife could run faster than your horses. Yeah. It's a bit like that. My dad can do more than yeah. your dad. Yeah. But there's more to it here. There is, there is. And particularly since uh, his prosperity has grown. And so he has to account for that at the fair. Um, so he gets into a situation where there are competing obligations, that she's laid an obligation on him not to speak of her. But his social and economic duty at the fair... Has to be explained. ...is, is to actually uh, name her and say what she has contributed to his wealth. So... He's suddenly in that awful bind, which if you're taking part in any kind of an Irish saga or mythological tale, you should always be careful when you find yourself being pulled in two different directions by two obligations, because that just spells disaster. Right, so she's in a way laid a gash on him. Effectively, it's not named as such, but given uh, her 
clearly supernatural origins and given that we know who she is and that she does specifically tell him not to speak of her, they might as well say that she puts him under gash. So he's really in an impossible position. Exactly. You know, he either has to fake his tax returns yeah. or and risk losing her yeah. or get in trouble anyway. Exactly, get in trouble for... for yeah. He's facing either tax fraud or separation or divorce or oh, however tough, you want to put it. It is, it's, it's a real bind. And in the context of the fair, he chooses to speak of her and to speak because she's played such an important role in his prosperity. And, and presumably, in a way, he, he other people must know what's happening. She can't have been completely invisible. Well, that's that's not really spoken of. I know, in any know. way, we're talking in human terms. Exactly, but it, yeah. this bit feels like a very human story. It does. It's, it's yeah, it really is being pulled both ways by, if you like, a public obligation and a private promise. Mm. You know, that that's, that's the bind he's in. And so he does end up breaking his promise to her. Um, once you break a promise in the old stories, if if you, in in these stories, if a gesh is broken, it escalates. Yeah, it's always going to cause problems, mind you. Um, the way that Cahur or the unnamed king of the the original story acts is a bit weird. I mean, okay, so he's angry, he's cross because somebody has said, "Look, your horses, they're great, but my wife could do better than that." That's going to really annoy someone anyway. But his reaction's a bit over the top. It is, and it's disproportionate because essentially he demands that this boast be demonstrated. And what's more, the penalty for not demonstrating it is death. Now, for a start, there really is no death penalty within the actual old Irish legal system. No, that's system. an odd one, isn't it? It is. He and should be forced to pay a price, but exactly. not... Uh, yeah. Uh, and so the fact that he's threatened with death and that the king demands, uh, if you like, a literal demonstration of uh, his wife's prowess, that's actually where the real damage is done. So the king gets so mad, he asks for something absurd. He asks for the impossible. And um, he's not behaving as the duly elected king, which is what we're, we're dealing with, a kind of a semi-democracy in the Greek sense. Yeah, yeah. Where, I mean, they were elected kings. Yeah, they, they were head, heads of strong They're not clans. kings, actually. They're not kings. Yeah. This word king is a, is, is a misnomer in it, a way. It is, in a way. We don't have a good English name for it. Um, but, yeah, essentially, uh, he has gone beyond what you would expect from someone in that position. He becomes, if you like, an, an absolute ruler. He becomes a tyrant yeah, in that And what's moment. more, what he's done is he's made a bad judgment. Yes. And in the old stories, in the Irish stories, no leader ever gets away with a bad judgment. Exactly. If he makes a bad judgment, he's going to be brought down. Yeah, um, partly because it reflects so badly. If he's false, then his kingdom is false. It's the same way, which is hard for those of us who have disabilities and ailments these days that, you know, a blemished king could not retain his position. So when Nuada lost his hand, he couldn't be king anymore. But there is this symbolic, very strong symbolic relationship between both the truth and integrity and health of the person that is ruler and the integrity and health of the land. That Comes they down in the stories as the king and the land are one. Yeah. But it's not really that he is the divine, he is not a divine ruler. No. He is the representation of the health of the land. Yes. I think this is a bit of a misunderstanding. People think about, they, they are not, they could be 
they could be taken down very easily, these kings, yes. or these so-called kings. Um, but nevertheless, if they were not true, yeah. then the land wasn't true. Yeah. And that reflected on the whole of the, 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 the tour. The exactly. BD, the people. Yeah, the it? health of the whole, the, yeah. like the small state. Yeah. State. And he definitely overreacts. Yeah, I think that I, I, I wouldn't imagine that there's anything within, if you like, a legal text. Now, again, it's hard to relate a story with mythic elements to the way that people would have experienced their lives. But nonetheless, given the context of the original audience for this story, that would have been definitely yeah. way, way over Well, time. he doesn't just ask a woman to come and race a, 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 mm. a team of horses, not just one horse, yeah. a team of horses, which is absurd. Yeah. He also then sees very clearly that the woman is about to give birth. Yes. And yet he still demands she run. And she asks three times, three times when the men come to get her, she says, I am near my time. It is not right that I should be asked to do this. And each time the death threat to Kronku is repeated. So she very clearly states that what's happening is not right but in order to save Kronhu's life which again shouldn't be forfeit for something so trivial he is in fact saying one of you is going to die yeah absolutely yeah. Um, which is a, a, a complete bad judgment yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it's an abuse but yeah. in terms of the old stories it's, it's a bad judgment yes. yeah. um, but isn't there even something more important in the way that he refuses to listen to her Yes, that she's in childbirth. This was one of the times when, well, it certainly it was always deeply respected. Yes, yeah. Well, there, there, there is an awful lot made of the status of women in old Irish society. Now, it was not an egalitarian society by any stretch of the imagination, but there were certain times when a woman's word was final in legal terms, and one of the times when a woman's oath which again is the legal contract, could not be oversworn, was anything that she swore in the process of giving birth. <laughs> in other words, whatever she says while she's in that condition, it's got to be true, because it's not in her interest to lie. That it reminds me of a story long ago where a friend of mine said that her mother said that uh, she vowed she would call the child the first thing that came into her head while she was in childbirth. Oh, and when she first saw the baby, she all she thought of was beetroot. Yes. <laughs> and they had to call in the Catholic priest to absolve her of a vow. <laughs> Otherwise, she was going to call the child beetroot. So you see, it goes yeah, on today. Exactly. Uh, but this is it, it is a really, really bad situation. Mm. So she has to run yeah. and do the impossible. Yes. But you've got this overlay of this supernatural ability mm over the top of a bad judgment. Yes. Uh, I find this story interesting because you've got this weird sort of supernatural overlaying a really very human story. Yes, yeah. Um, something that is not supernatural mm. is overlaid by the Maka yeah. um, uh, story. I, I, I think it's actually quite remarkable. It reminds me a little about the, you know, the king and the land being one. There are so many stories. I mean, people will probably know the, the story of the Arthurian wasteland, mm -hmm. but there's a much uh, older story called The Lady of the Fountain in the Welsh um, mythological cycle, where uh, the, the, the golden cups of the ladies of the fountains are stolen, and this causes a wasteland. And once again, it, 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 it's the abuse of... Um, uh, 
either women or the symbols of the women, the fertility mm. of the land, because mm. um, in those stories, it usually represents the women and the wells, represent yeah. the fertility of the land. And when that is stolen mm -hmm. or taken away or raped in that case, um, the land becomes a wasteland. And there's a feeling that this is the same sort of story. It is. And again, it's, it's uh, in common with the story of the Lady of the Fountain, that uh, it's the disruption of order is what will bring the land down. Now, when Macha finishes her race against the horses, which she succeeds in doing, that's the sort of that's the supernatural mm -hmm. element. And it's when she then lies down and gives birth that she speaks her curse against the people of Ulster. Mm. Uh, or the people of that particular Tuath. And because a woman's word during childbirth cannot be countermanded like you say it can't be unspoken it means that the curse that she says that the Ulstermen will find themselves debilitated in times of great need that then has to come true because whatever the woman says while she's giving birth mm. must be true and the king has condemned his people to disadvantage for generations for generations exactly um so it it is it's in some ways like when I would have looked at this story before, I would have, if you like, placed the blame on Krunku for, for breaking his vow uh, of secrecy to Macha. But in fact, it's the king in the story who uh, brings about the destruction of his own kingdom. Which makes it a wasteland story. It is, yeah. Um, it, it, and it's interesting, although in many ways it also throws up issues of the treatment of women, that's not the you know, however important, it's actually yeah. not the prime meaning of the story. It's, it's certainly, it's not the beginning and end of it. It's it's still, it's one of the stories that is very difficult as, if you like, a modern human woman. It's very difficult to read or hear the story without feeling that compassion and without feeling that there is definitely a message here about mistreating mm. actual human women. Yeah, but women. she's already doing the impossible. Exactly. So it's yeah. that's not to be by, by saying, yes, she succeeded. If she'd been a human woman asked to race a horse, which was impossible, yeah. that would be an story yeah. of abuse. Exactly. But because she is already a supernatural woman, we're yes. being told that's not the point. Exactly, yeah. It's there's... not putting aside the issues, but yeah. that's not the point of the yeah. story. yeah. Of course, the uh, the bit about the dark child and the light child, I'm afraid that was just poetic interpretation. There's nothing to say that one was a dark child and one was a light. I chose to see it as almost like the blessing of fame and the curse of weakness. Um, but that's just wording. But there is an interesting thing. She puts a noinden of weakness on them. Yeah. Um, that word noinden, I think, is quite a... It's tricky a, one. It's tricky. It's been a bit controversial, all right, especially when it comes to naming the tale, because the the general name that's accepted with sort of old Irish linguists and so on is Noinden Ullad, which is the Noinden of the Ulster people. It's often taken as uh, nine days. Yes. What is it? Four nights and five days, or the other way around? Yeah. Well, again, but, this thing of what a Noinden is. Yeah, it's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, there, there were, there was a feeling that it might be Noinden, which is a word for a baby, but it's not actually a word that's used for a, a newborn baby. I know I said earlier it was Lelup because I love that word, which is a word for a baby. Word for a baby is lelop. Lelop. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. But in fact, the, the newborn, so what Macha would have held in her arms as she declaimed the Ulsterman, would have been referred to as clan, which is the same word we use in modern Irish for family. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in modern Irish, you still say a goomperclina, carrying family is the way to describe a pregnant woman. She's a goomper Oh, that's lovely. Which is yeah. lovely, yeah. yeah. And it, it has the same root as the Latin planda, so it's the same as a plant. So um, so 
the word doesn't really apply specifically to children or to infants or childbirth, that Neunden word. So it doesn't mean a confinement, it's often taken no, to be... No, and again, it's it's there's a lot made of, you know, that the, the, the Ulsterman will be as weak as women a in woman childbirth. woman in childbirth, yeah. Um, now the, or would suffer the confinement. Yes. You the see pains the, of confinement. The, the other word that's used is kes. Right. And so there's kes ullad as well, which mm -hmm. is that's the debility of the Ulsterman, which is, if you like, that's the result. The kes is the result. Mm -hmm. That can mean kind of almost depression. Kes can mean that kind of sadness um, and that kind of uh, lack of energy. Um, but the nine, then, it certainly seems to have nine in there. Nine is definitely an element. The, the ending, it's not necessarily days, but it does refer to time. And when you have nine plus time plus a woman who's giving birth, that just screams nine months to me. Mm. It's also interesting that the nine, you get nine times nine or nine times eternal. Yeah. That nine, once you add more to it, can often mean forever. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's like a year and a day. Yes, yeah. But I've noticed that the nine mm. or nine times yes, yeah. is often seen as, oh, Indefinitely. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But again, the specifically the, the, the time related to the Ulsterman's debility, I would favour a nine-month period mm -hmm. of debility. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the only kind of safe translation, if you like, for nine then would be niner. Mm -hmm. you know? so, for a niner. For a niner, yeah. Which again could mean indefinite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, how long does Cahullan hold? The forward, the yeah, forward yeah. During the the weakness of the, the debility of the man of Ulster exactly, it's yeah. not stated is it I don't think so I'm not as familiar we haven't checked it no. <laughs> we'll check it we will check it but certainly for, from this story being taken if you like on its own merits like there, there is a reference in some of the Dinhianicus tellings of uh, that it will go f for nine or nine times nine generations well, nine times nine I yeah. still maintain is is forever is indefinite yeah yeah but it, it, it just it, it's definitely a major curse yes oh th there's no doubt about it the proclaiming of the debility that Macha does is mm. that really it's almost the first time she speaks she has three times said don't race me against the horses it's not right and that just gets overridden three times and then she does declaim at that point that she's giving birth mm. she proclaims that this debility will come on the Ulsterman so this is where we actually see who she is so obviously Maka in giving birth she dies or oh, this is in the story I know I have a sort of disappearing and turned into a horse but that's poetic um but what about the babies it doesn't i mean i know the, the name of the place means the twins of maka it does e everyone means twins so yeah evan maka is the twins of twins maka. of maka that's the name of the place yeah. and yet there's um a curious absence of yeah the story there's one of the dinhianica stories does give them names which are fear and feel which means something like well fear is truth and feel is loyalty, that kind of thing, or honour, or something like that. Um, but really, they're they're kind of inconsequential. You know, it's it's what's important is that she gave birth, that there was two of them, and that that gave the place its name. However, there is a a curious 
folk version of the story that comes from County Galway, whereby a woman in her heavy pregnancy races against horses and then gives birth. And in the County Galway version, that is a birth of Cuchulain. It's Cuchulain's mother that um, yes. race around. It's interesting, isn't it, that it's connected Cuchulain, who was the one person who was, in fact, not, not subject affected. To the, uh, the the non den of the Men of Ulster. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it also points us to the literary version of the conception and birth of Cuchulain. Um and that's a story that concerns Cruhor, Cuncover, and um, that being two pronunciations of the same yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. Um, and his daughter in that version of the story going into the other world having been led there by birds and then there's a big snow and they overnight in a house where there's a man and a woman and the woman is giving birth and Ekhtera helps with the birth and fosters the child the important bit we will come back to that story another time but the important bit here is that in the same night uh, a mare gives birth to twin foals in the same household and in the morning while all the other world dwellings and so on are gone, what is left behind is this other world baby and the two foals, which are then raised and become Cúchalans, two mm. chariot horses, uh, one of whom is called Liamacha. But there's another story that's even that's an even closer parallel. But this one comes from the Welsh Mabinogion, and it's the story of Rhiannon. Now, she is a wonderful otherworld goddess, and uh, she's first met by, um, uh, by Puch, who wants an adventure, and he stands on a hill and gives the three, three, uh, three shouts of challenge, which turns up in other stories over here as well. And um, he sees her riding past on a horse, but he cannot keep up with her and her horse, until finally he says to her, just won't you stop? Can't you slow down a bit? And she said, yes, and better would it have been for your horse had you asked me earlier. And uh, they get together, and finally, uh, when she has a child, the night of the child's birth, the child is stolen away, and her ladies are so scared that they uh, put blood around her mouth, the uh, blood of a, I think it's a dog, I can't be quite sure, and she is accused of having eaten her or destroyed her own child. Well, her punishment, she's set to be a horse. She is set to carry visitors from the mounting post to the hall, and that's her job. And uh, this is her punishment. Now, meanwhile, in another part of the same country, um, there is a, 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 a farmer, a strong farmer, much the same sort of person as um, Crumperu, who has a wonderful horse who foals every May Eve. But each May Eve, the, 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 the new foal is stolen away. So he sets to watch, and eventually he sees a monstrous arm come through the window, and he cuts off the arm, and there in its place is uh, the, the foal, and also a baby, a boy of about four years old. Well, they bring up the child as his own, and it turns out that this child turns out to be the lost son of Rhiannon, and when they're united, she names him Prideri, which means care. But that seems to be a very close parallel. Yeah, and um, particularly <clears throat> the, the two sort of seemingly contradictory elements in those two stories is that for both Rhiannon and Macha, they're forced to behave as a horse, and this seems to be either a punishment or a belittling or, you know, something wrong that way. Yeah, but it's actually giving their true nature, isn't it's it? It's actually showing up who they are because yeah. both of them, when you sort of follow the trail, as it were, 
of their children. You find horses there all the time. So really what we have here is a mythical woman who is sometimes a horse mm. and mm. shares of the nature of a horse. Mm. And I think that's what's important. And with Macha, when we go back to thinking about her name as a pasture land, of course, the highest status stock that you can raise on pasture in these climates is a horse mm. and so it's like the richest pasture the womb of the horse yeah that that which produces the best horses yes uh, yeah i i think it, it it then it's it's not so much supernatural mm. as um this 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 wonderful metaphor mm. for the way to for your land to be most productive to mm. have the most prosperity and mm. most wealth uh, it, it's it's very interesting mm. Um, but there's not there another version of the Evanmacher. Yes, yes, there is. And uh, what I enjoy about reading a text like the Metrical Dinhenicus um, is that the poets can put together two really quite different stories, both purporting to be the origin of the name. And there's contradictions within those stories if you think of it in, in terms of a history rather than a story, but the poets had no problem listing them alongside. So alongside this story of Evwan Macha and its naming that we've just heard, they go on to talk of another one. And this is about Macha Mungruad, she's known as Macha of the Red Mane or the Red Hair. Um, and this is the Macha who, like the wife of Mevid, is a daughter of Oid Ruad. Uh, the red flame red or flame. red hue, whichever. And now in this story, what's lovely is that they tell us that Macha was also called Grian, the sun, mm. um, and that her dwelling was in the west. The sun and the pasture. Yeah. So um, all of these very bright, fertile images, um, really nothing to do with any kind of battle goddess, if you so ask me. How does it get to, how do, in this case, how does uh, Owen Macca get its name? Um, well, again, we have another one of these uh, stories that's full of characters with difficult names, like the five sons of Dithurva. But essentially, there is a, a land dispute, and Macha is the daughter of one of the kings, one of the noblemen, who has entitlement to these lands, and she won't give up her claim to it to the, the male folk who uh, are the other inheritors. So it's interesting, it's a woman saying that she... About, I have the right to this land. Exactly. I have the right to sovereignty yes. or yeah. guardianship. Exactly, yeah. And um, in essence, the, the crux of it as a, a naming story, if you like, is that she says that she will take the land that she can encircle using her brooch pin. And so she takes the pin off her cloak and inscribes a circle in the land, and that is how Evan Macha is built. The brooch pin of Macha. Yes. And they use a bit of synthetic etymology here, and this is where you find it coming up in places like Cormac's Glossary. They say that Evan, even though they know that Evan means twin, you know, that that's... Not an obscure term, even in the time of the, the glossaries. But they do this synthetic etymology. They play with the word. And they say, Evan is Eo Vwyn. And of course, Mwyn, uh, in modern Irish, Mwynnail, is the neck. So they say it's the brooch at her neck. Uh, and that's how it gets to be called, you know, the neck brooch, if you like, or neck pin of Macha. 
Eowyn Macha. So it's a kind of word play on that. But again, anyone who's familiar with some of the Irish uh, stories that are taught to us in, in school and what have you know the story of Bridget claiming land by laying her cloak down on the ground and that the cloak covers this huge pasturage and um, that's so she manages to get a good parcel of land out of the menfolk and here we have Macha taking the pin from her cloak and using that to inscribe land that she then has uh, her entitlement to mm. in perpetuity It's an interesting variant It is um, But so we end up with Mucker as naming this uh, place, but also it is the beginning of the end, isn't it? It's 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 the a story of how she lays a curse for the lack of pity, and therefore the land is cursed, and it actually begins the whole story of the toy. It does. Uh, it's it's kind of the first stone in the avalanche, and you will find the story of Macha and Evan Macha, or the Nine Danulad, you'll find that listed as one of the Fushkelta for the time. So it's oh. one of the ten stories that you have to tell before you can even start yeah. on the cattle raid itself. After the cattle raid, uh, the time of Kul, Kulna, Kulna, yeah. which is a very, very long story, which is the greatest stories of Cahollan and it is, but Maeve. it all, uh, Maeve and Eilil and the two bulls and yeah. it's far too long to tell now, but it's a story I'm sure we'll, it's actually one you can find very easily. It's it, a, is. it is a great story. But it all begins with the story of Maka. It does. And what's interesting is that uh, compared to other stories, this is a story of entropy, of heroic tragedy. It's positively eschological. It all starts in glory and ends in tragedy. Yes. Um, terrible, really. When she curses the... Uh, the men of Ulster, when she curses the, the place where all these stories are set, the whole story from then on is downhill. It is, but remember that the setup is of Maka coming unbidden, of the pasture bringing with it a good order of well husbanded land. The promises to her are broken, so that order is disregarded and disrespected and that's the first step on the road to the dissolution of every kind of order every kind of social structure every right way to do things essentially the the town and all of its fushkelta is one huge counterexample of how, how not, not to run a country, country. <laughs> how not to do things uh, everything is a series of broken promises uh, um, and a story of betrayal Absolutely. but it, it makes me feel do you feel it, I always think about it as a story on the cusp of things it feels like a story where it's a change of um a change in the relationship the a change in the relationship to the land um sovereignty arising from the relationship with the land changing to the possession of territory or is this unfair or too fanciful uh i think it's certainly there i mean within just the story of macha herself that we've gone through you do see the, the competing attitudes, the one of the gentle order that can't be legally bound, that is the, the abundance given by the land itself when it's tended for and cared for and ordered, as opposed to the tyranny of the king who is only interested in uh, possessions and then ultimately as it comes in 
again the whole point the cattle raid itself is begun with a comparison of possessions between Maeve and Alil and so you you've moved away from wealth coming from a good healthy relationship with the land around you and turning into a, a vying for territory for assets and for mm. possession it does show a change in that relationship and the corresponding changes in social structure mm. and the way that it culminates in the town we probably are looking at a reflection of the end of a way of life yeah it's very interesting i mean that's the end of the story of uh, of Marco, but there is one more little twist to the story is if you look at the real place of our our Marco, known now as Navan fort up in um uh, up uh, county armagh county armagh sorry i was i was just i suddenly had omer in my head it's mm. uh, county armagh um Archaeologically, it's a very, very interesting place and well worth visiting. And uh, we'll try and make sure that some of the details about the archaeology of the place are on the blog. But it, it, it was built in a very short time and was built up as, a, if you like, a great big roundhouse divided into sections, which over 100 years were completed with um, different types of soil and stones from different areas of Ireland. It was roof, then it was burnt just burned down, and then it was buried. And that's what's under the hill of uh, Awamaka. It, it, it is a very strange story indeed, archaeologically, and absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And uh, I think that possibly is the biggest mystery of it all, of them all, yeah. is the true story of Awamaka. Yes. Uh, I think uh, Maka still has a few mysteries to uncover. Absolutely. But I think that when you start to understand that rather than being, if you like, a bringer of destruction, that her true form is bringing prosperity and order, and that the destruction only comes because of that being disrupted. I think that's that puts her well away from any notion of being a battle goddess. She certainly is not that. Yeah. Goddess of pastures, well, personage, I wouldn't like to call her yeah, a goddess, yeah. but a, a, a figure of the pasture mm. and the sun on the pasture. Yeah. And the prosperity of the gift of the horses, mm -hmm. uh, the girth, the garth, and the the garden. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Ogilvy Nanagas conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www storyarchaeology.com You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com <laughs>